Good morning. Take up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, the Pew Bible in front of you is the one I will be reading out of. And turn in that Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible, to page number 905. Page number 905, otherwise known as John 19. John 19. I'll be preaching this morning mainly out of John 19 and 20. And I would like to read both of those passages, though they are a bit long. And I would also, I'm also going to read from 1 Corinthians 15. If you would please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word, let us read John 19. Follow along as I read this. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone of Payment and an Aramaic Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called to the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what have I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says... They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had finished the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb on which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. And they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, Why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
Now turn in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 15, or if you have a pew Bible, it's number 906, page 961. Paul, in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, <clears throat> helps us to understand the magnitude of the resurrection. I'm going to begin in verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what, do you sow? what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Father, we come to you at this time, on this day, the day of the celebration of the risen Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The setting was Dublin, Ireland. 
And the day was 19 days after Easter that year. Easter that year was on March 25th, earlier than it is even today. The year was 1742. A small choir had been assembled along with a relatively small number of musicians. And they were there for what we know to be the premiere of arguably the greatest piece of music that has ever been written by man. Handel's Messiah. A piece that has become very synonymous with Christmas, but rightfully so was played this morning during our prelude because it was premiered at Easter. And if you were to study that piece in depth, you would see that there are places of emphasis on the birth of Christ, but the vast emphasis of that entire piece is upon the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the eternal glorious reign of Christ. And it's capped by the majestic peace. Hallelujah. I don't think there will ever be and or ever be even a series of sermons that is going to be uh, in detail enough or glorious enough to capture the glory that we see in the passages we've just read in John 19 and 20 and 1 Corinthians 15. But my aim simply this morning is the same as the Apostle John in chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And you see there in chapter 20, Thomas, who cries out, my Lord and my God. So I want to take just a few moments this morning to simply soak in the wonder and beauty of three truths. Three truths that we might again afresh behold the wonder of Jesus Christ and have our faith and our belief in him strengthened for yet another day. Go back in your Bibles to John chapter 20. 19 and 20 is what we've read. I'll actually set up in verse 18, uh, in chapter 18 and then take us through 19 and 20. The three truths I'm going to go over this morning is the lamb was slain is truth number one. Truth number two is Christ is risen and the truth number three is he reigns and so shall we. The majority of our time will be on number one and that will set up our remaining time in number two and three. The lamb was slain, truth number one. We're told in 1 Peter 2.24, Christ, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And I want to settle in on that phrase, by his wounds you have been healed. To really grasp the significance of the spiritual healing that we gain in Christ, it would do us some good to examine the wounds that he suffered physically upon our behalf. Look at chapter 18 of John. I hesitated to even do this because I, I don't want to get fanatical here, but I do want in a way to help you understand the depth of the suffering Christ took upon our behalf. Chapter 18, Christ is in the garden. <clears throat> he's in the garden of Gethsemane. He's spent much of the evening there. We're not sure how much time he's been there, but he's been there for quite some time. He's been in prayer and he knows Judas is coming and he knows that things have already been set in motion for him to be taken to the cross and Judas comes and the high priest and they, and they arrest him and notice um, Verse 13 of John 18. First they led. First they led. It's to accomplish the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led. 
to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was led to the cross willingly. And you see the beginning of his suffering, physical suffering, happening in verse 22 of John 18. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. In Luke 22, we're told that that beating was not just by one man, it was accompanied by mocking, and that he had had his face blindfolded, and they were mocking him, crying out, prophesy, who's that that has just struck you? We're told in Matthew and Mark that they spit on him as they were doing this. The Son of Man, just a few days before Palm Sunday was celebrated as the coming king, and now he's treated as worse than a criminal. In those days, it was considered barbarous to strike even a criminal when he was standing at the, at the, at the seat of the judge. And his face would likely have been deeply bruised by this. We don't know how long that suffering went along, but it was deeply bruised. It was probably swollen upon our account. Think of what it would have felt like to have your face blindfolded and have men not politely slap you, but to beat you. His eyes may have been swollen shut. His lips may have been bleeding. And yet it had barely even begun. He was probably weak already from being up all night, maybe dehydrated for not having any food or water, having been praying in the garden. Caiaphas, the high priest, sends Christ to Pilate, and Pilate examines him, and rightfully so, finds nothing. This is the sinless Savior. It's the spotless Lamb of God. He sends him to Herod, where he's treated with contempt and mocked again in Luke 23. And Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate again confirms the guiltlessness of our Christ in John eighteen thirty eight. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Having already told him, having going out to the Jews and saying, I find no guilt in him. John 19. Though Pilate would deliver Christ to be crucified by the Jews' request, it would first, he would first apply the customary punishment of a Roman, of Roman rule of flogging. And there's some debate in theologians as to whether or not Pilate uh, issued the flogging as a punishment and that was not going to be, uh, that was going to be separate to the crucifixion or if this was setting up the crucifixion. I think there's enough evidence to probably say this was separate from the crucifixion. And it takes a strong stomach to read the account of Roman floggings. And it should take a strong stomach because it was horrendously brutal. I remember growing up, uh, the uh, doctor in one of our in our church growing up giving a medical account of the crucifixion and one man walking out and fainting. The amount of calculated pain and loss of blood is barbarous, and it's beyond that even. Most wouldn't even make it through the brutal flogging. Most would die anyway. And if you didn't die, you were at least rendered probably unconscious from either the pain or the loss of blood. We remember that the Jews had a rule, 40 lashes only, and they, to keep the law, would go one less, 39 lashes. The Romans had no such rule. And would often take it to the point they were satisfied. And the whip would do its job. It would leave the perpetrator, if even conscious, 
too weak to break the law again anytime soon. But this wasn't a lawbreaker, and Pilate and Herod knew it. His entire back would have been coated in his own blood, and most of the skin on his back would have been torn away. And they stood up Christ, and they placed a purple robe on his back, and that would temporarily stop the bleeding, but it wasn't for that purpose at all. They then drove a crown of twisted thorns into his already swollen and bruised head, causing, as we anybody knows, if you get cut in the face or in the head, you breathe profusely, and that would have made it probably even difficult for Christ to see, much less walk. And then they took that purple robe, and they stripped it from his back again breaking open the bleeding and dressing him again in his own clothes. He was brought before Pilate again, who realized in some small way the atrocity that he was witnessing. And he sought to gain Christ's release. Look at verse 13 of chapter 19. Excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 19, John. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But mob rule wins out. And he was delivered up to the Jews for crucifixion to be administered by the Romans. Only the Apostle John gives us the indication that Christ carried the cross. You see that in verse 17. And he went out bearing his own cross. The other Gospels don't mention that Christ bore his own cross. And the cross of that day was not the cross that we see at the top of the steeple in the form of a, of a small T. It would have uh, looked in that day or resembled our capital T. It wouldn't have had a a vertical member above the horizontal structure. So it had one tall post that was embedded into the ground and then there was a cross beam that was set on top of that. And that cross beam often weighed upwards of 125 pounds. And that beam was lashed to the shoulders, hands extended to the perpetrator who would then have to carry that beam to his place of death, already weak from flogging, if you were to fall, you had no control over your fall because of the weight of the beam and your hands being held up. And so you would dive face first into the pavement. Christ falls. We don't know what that looked like. But as he's going down the 650 yards or so that we know that's the Via Della Rosa, It was probably, it is narrow, and it was probably crowded with mob rule, and it was difficult enough to make the walk without the cross, much less with one. Upon reaching Golgotha, he has his clothes stripped again, again causing the bleeding to start on his back, and save possibly for a loincloth afforded by the Jews when they were involved, he was stripped of all his clothing. The term excruciating comes, literally means out of crucifying. Crucifixion was, and for all intents and purposes still is, the most excruciating way that anyone has ever devised for men to die. The Romans did not invent the method, but they took it to new heights of pain. And they modified the process to inflict as much pain as possible, as slow as possible. They knew it to be so effective that they would allow Jewish women to, in kindness, administer a wine mixed with myrrh. You see that in many of the 
passages. John does not mention it, but he gets to the cross and they offer him wine mixed with myrrh and he denies it. Why? Why did he deny the wine mixed with myrrh? Well, wine mixed with myrrh was basically a mild narcotic. You would drink it and it would provide some sense of numbness, some sense of uh, keeping the pain to a minimum because it was already going to be at the maximum. It really didn't do much for you, but it was more of a mental thing. But Christ refused that. And he refused it because he chose to bear for us fully, with, with nothing to take the edge off, the full pain and punishment that God rightly intended for us. He wanted to bear it in full consciousness. And he did. The arms were extended, though they not, were not fully extended. They were th- extended with some bend. And long spikes were driven through the small bones in the wrists. And the placement was not calculated for the bones. The placement of the spikes was calculated to drive through the nerve that runs through this area of your body so that any slight movement would, shin, would send shearing pain all the way up your shoulders and into your body. The feet were the same way, placed against the vertical posts, slightly bent, spikes driven through the ankle bones to accomplish the same effect of nerve pain through the legs and up through the body. And then the crucifixion had begun. And if your legs were broken, a healthy man, if he was to be hung this way with no beating, and his legs were broken on the cross, would die in minutes. And yet if your legs weren't broken, one might last for a few hours or even a day. I think sometimes we think of the cross as being difficult to breathe in. The cross was designed not to make it difficult to breathe in. The cross was designed to make it difficult to exhale. A cruel twist. You could get the oxygen you need, but you couldn't get it out of your body. And as strength subsided, carbon dioxide would build up and the body would push and pull against the spikes, drawing the torn and beaten body up the rough post to exhale. And soon the pressure upon the chest would be so immense, fluid would begin to build up around the heart, placing tremendous pressure on the chest. And that's medically why when his side was pierced, water flowed. And he endured this for six hours. Six hours he hung upon this cross. And as the time came to a close, he had only one prophecy left. And he says, John nineteen thirty, it is finished. The prophecy that was to be filled before he was to claim that was, I thirst, and that prophecy is found in Psalm sixty nine twenty one. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And he summons that last bit of strength and breath to say, I thirst. And someone runs forward and finds there at the base of the cross a jar of sour wine. And they put it on a sponge and they lift it to his lips. And he takes a drink. Why? Because he didn't take the drink the first time. This drink that was given was a very cheap wine, a sour wine that was meant for refreshment. It was oftentimes found among the fields. If you think of the story of Ruth in the Old Testament and she goes and drinks a bit of refreshment, that was probably this sour wine. It was mixed in a way that it was cheap, easy to get, and it provides some some hydration for you. It provided a bit of refreshment. 
See, Christ refused to allow the pain to be numb, but he did not hesitate to allow the pain and take what was necessary to take the pain to the fullest extent. He took that bit of refreshment. Notice, though, the sponge fittingly was raised to his mouth on a hyssop branch. That was the same branch used in the Exodus Passover to apply the lamb, the blood of the sacrificial lamb to the doorpost. And upon drinking, he declares the finished work of punishment for our sins, and he died. John, earlier in his book, says rightly, Behold the Lamb of God. And he says in Revelation, Behold the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Christ bore our punishment, the full measure of our punishment. He bore it willingly, and he bore it submissively to the will of the Father. Isaiah 53, 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, or by his stripes, we are healed. What does this mean for us? It means that we could not live unless he died. It means, though, that he did not die just that we could live. He did not die simply that our sins would be forgiven. His death accomplished something so much more, something far more impossible to accomplish than even bringing life to death. That's fanatical enough that you could have someone come from death to life. But even more impossible to that was that his death completely satisfied the righteous wrath of God for sinners that was waiting to be poured out in power on us as sinners. Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Notice, God's the one who puts forward as a propitiation by his blood, Christ, that we might be able to be in him as we receive him in faith. John says in 1 John 4, 8 through 10, God is love, and this was manifest to the love of God toward us because God sent his only begotten son. This was not Christ's idea. He worked in conjunction with the Father, but the Father said, my wrath must be atoned for. And only through the blood of Christ will I accept that. And he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. J.I. Packer puts it this way. The wrath of God is as personal and as potent as his love. And just as the blood shedding of the Lord Jesus was the direct manifesting of his of the father's love toward us so it was the direct averting of his father's wrath against us john murray in his book the atonement puts it this way the doctrine of the propitiation is precisely this that god loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he by his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath It was Christ so to deal with the wrath that the loved would no longer be the objects of wrath and love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. The Lamb 
of Christ, the Lamb of God, Christ the Son, was slain by the decree of the Father upon our behalf because only Christ could make provision for us worthy of the payment necessary. It's no wonder that P.P. Bliss penned the glorious words, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Truth number one, the lamb was slain for us. Truth number two, Christ is risen. Sinclair Ferguson says this, what seemed to be, what seemed to be defeat was actually victory. The resurrection morning was hell's gloomiest day. Amen. All of the all of Christian, the all of the Christian life hinges, and it would be even better to say all of the Christian life rotates, revolves around in all its glory the resurrection of Christ. The work of Christ for us on the cross is beyond what we can comprehend. But the resurrection of Christ is beyond that. We read in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that according to Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. See, the death of every man, the death of every person, is for the payment of their sin. That's the wages of your sin is death. The just punishment for sin is death. But the death of Christ wasn't punishment for his sins. It wasn't punishment for his sins. It was punishment for our sins because he was and is the sinless son of God. The no, Christ's death was for your sins, was for my sins, and was for all those who call upon the name of Christ in repentance and saving faith. And because it was for your sins and not his sins, he did not have to pay the payment in terms of death forever because he was raised exactly because his death was not for his sin, but rather was a fitting and just punishment accepted by God the Father. The resurrection proves that Christ was indeed spotless, that the Father was satisfied by the payment of his Son and glorified him in resurrecting him. Consider some of the abundant blessings found in Christ that comes through the resurrection. I'll give quickly three. We have been raised from spiritual, do- spiritual death to spiritual life because he arose. Because Christ rose from the dead physically, we now have the ability to rise from spiritual death to spiritual life. We have the promise of physical eternal life with him forever because he arose. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15. He was the first fruits. He's the first one who did it, who rose from the dead because he did not need to stay dead because Christ had accepted the payment for our sins. So one day now we can then rise again physically because Christ has paid the penalty. And thirdly, the resurrection of Christ makes certain our justification. Paul tells us in Romans 4.25, Jesus was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In declaring approval of the work of his son on the cross for sin, God has declared approval for us. 
Do you get that? You are approved by God. You are approved by God. He looks upon you and says, I love you and I find approval in you. Jesus paid it all. We just sung that. The payment of sin was complete. So he doesn't look to you and say, ah, but there's sin. I can't find approval because of that sin. No, he says, all that payment was complete. I, I don't need any more to be paid for. Christ did it all. And for the Christian, he finds approval in you. G. Campbell Morgan tells the story of an of a Italian minister who came to a grave of a man who had died centuries before who was an unbeliever and did not believe in Christ and was even a little afraid to do it. So he had put a huge stone slab over his grave so he would not be raised from the dead just in case there was going to be a rising from the dead. He didn't want to come out and even inscribed on the slab, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. And yet, an acorn had apparently fallen into the grave while being buried. And now, maybe even a hundred years later, the acorn had grown up through the grave and had split the top of that thousand pound stone in half. And now stood a tall, towering oak tree. And G. Campbell Morgan makes makes the case that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and we would say the physical power of a tiny, dead acorn that has grown to split thousand-pound slabs of rock in two, lives in you. That's what it says, Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The power of the resurrection, and it it is unfathomable to think what it must have been like in that tomb behind that stone as Christ was resurrected from death to life. But that same power that did that dwells in you as a Christian. Truth number three. He reigns and so shall we. He was raised exactly because his death was not for his sin, but rather was a fitting and just punishment accepted by God the Father. But not simply is his resurrection an acknowledgement of a perfect sacrifice. Oh no, it did not stop there. Resurrection was not enough of an acknowledgement. As we're told in John 13, 31. He was resurrected, but it wasn't enough. He is now reigning. And our hope is not simply in that we have been raised from death to light spiritually and will one day, because of his resurrection bodily, we will be raised again and be with him. Oh no, our hope is in so much more than that. We will reign with him because his death not only satisfied the just wrath of God, but it conquered sin and death. And he rules and reigns now, and we do as well in a small extent, and one day we'll experience in the full extent. 
2 Timothy 2, For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. We are raised with him, and we shall reign with him. And even now we experience that in some small way. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Something we have not experienced physically, we do have spiritually. Consider now that sin has no longer any dominion over us. Through Christ, we in effect reign over sin. We have the ability by his blood and through his grace to not give in to sin. To live for him and to love him. Sin kept us from the ability to live for him and to love him. But no longer are we in that state anymore. We have now been risen with Christ spiritually. He is now reigning and we now reign because he reigns. And we have that ability through his blood to overcome sin in our lives. We reign because he granted us faith in Christ. Faith in Christ brings resurrection power into our lives, allowing us overcoming power of sin. 1 John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You sit here this morning and you've not tasted of Christ. You've not by faith placed your trust in him. I, I plead with you to come to Christ and see the power that is here to overcome sin. To see the work of what he has done for you upon the cross. Work that really is, is indescribable and unfathomable. That the son of God, the perfect son of man would willingly go to a cross and bear pain that no human being in even the slightest way can possibly comprehend. Our reigning doesn't just stop there over sin. Our reigning is also, in a sense, a royal priesthood. We are the church, the body of Christ. And the fitting job of our reign is that we are able by the work of Christ to declare to the world around us the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We have authority by God to declare the gospel. And he's given us that as we reign with him. Matthew 16, 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Meaning the the ability to proclaim the gospel. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 19. So what is the implications for us this morning as Christians? I think it's simply that God was pleased to accept the perfect sacrifice of his son upon the cross and therefore now God is pleased with you, his children because of the meritorious work of Christ. That's unfathomable to understand that God is pleased with you. Now, don't hear me wrong. God is not pleased with your sin. He's, he's deeply wounded by that. But that sin, even now in your life, has no ability to erase the pleasure that he has in you because of the work of Christ for you. And he now looks at you and says, even in your sin, my child, I have adopted you. You are my brother. And all of the different relational terms that we have in Scripture that Christ has with us because of 
God's pleasure in the perfect work of Christ. His blood covering us. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he's not blessed it because you're going to be perfect. He's blessed it because Christ was perfect for you. George Frederick Handel got it right. More than any Sunday in the year and really more than any day of the year, Easter is the pinnacle. It's above Christmas. Easter is the day upon which all the hope of the Christian hinges. And not simply hinges, but declares with eternal authority and certainty the living hope of Christ for sinners that allows our faith in Him, gifted by Him, to be unshakable and immovable. And not simply hinges, but declares with eternal authority and certainty the living hope of Christ for sinners that allows our faith in him, gifted by him, to be unshakable and immovable. Father, we come now in awe of you, our Savior. Father, wrath, your righteous wrath, so justly intended for me, and yet so perfectly taken by Christ. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to this. Open our eyes to the the realization that our life in Christ now as a believer is glorious. And our relationship with you as God the Father is now one of immense love and grace and kindness. And yet, Father, we see this cross and all the horror that is there and we, we, we fall at your feet in fear and in reverence, rejoicing on the one hand of our relationship with you and love and yet horrified at what took place that where there might be that love for us. Father, I pray that the wounds by which we have been healed would be implanted, embedded upon our minds and our hearts to such an extent that there is no ability that we have to remove ourselves from the love of God the Father through Christ the Son for us. Father, may our hearts be exploding with joy in knowing Christ, our Savior. Father, I pray that if there's someone here that may, for the first time, have heard the gospel this morning, maybe for the hundredth time may have heard the gospel this morning, of the work of Christ for us, that, and it is now seeing it in all of its glory for the first time, that you would draw them, that they would come. And they would come in faith, saving faith, repentance of their sin, surrender their lives to you. And be able to this day rejoice. Rejoice and sing the praises of Christ, the risen King. 
Father, what glory is ours this morning and we give you all the praise and the thanksgiving for this day, this day of Easter. In Jesus' precious name we pray.